First uh, Timothy chapter two, verses one through seven. And would you stand as I read? First Timothy chapter two, beginning at verse one. Hear the word of the living God. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may live a lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and knowledge in truth. Excuse me. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for. Your word. We thank you that you have in your wisdom and providence, your good disposition toward us, have given your word written down before us that we might have it, read it and understand it. We thank you that your word was inspired in a known tongue. In everyday language. And it has been now preserved for us and translated into our language that we might understand it. So would you help us to understand it? We understand that coming to your word, it is not simply a matter of grammar and syntax and vocabulary. But we need your Holy Spirit to come and give us illumination. To come and give us understanding. To give us insight and eyes to see and ears to hear that simply understanding the things of God requires the spirit of God. And so, Lord, would you help us? And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard for the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, Lord, would you speak? Drive out the influences of darkness. Shine your light and speak. Father in heaven, I pray that you would now, even today, even this morning, even right now, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. may be seated. We live in days of division. If we've learned anything over the last five or six or seven or years or maybe 50 or 60 or 70 years. I'm not going to move. I don't know, man. Do you hear that? Okay. I don't need this. But we can use. All right, we good? Good, good, good. We live in days of division, and if uh, if you follow any sort of social media, which I, as your pastor, do not recommend, but I know many of you are on there. I'm on there. I feel like I have to be. Uh, but it's it's obvious that our culture, the in the West, and particularly American culture, is splintering. 
It splinters into various tribes over various issues that we splinter politically, we splinter ethnically, we splinter socioeconomically, we splinter over interests and emphases, even within the context of the church. We have, obviously, there are innumerable denominations. And then even last night, Sarah Beth and I were were talking about, uh, we, we had, you don't need to know the backstory, we were talking about various Christian denominations, and then various shades under those denominations that there are. She she was baffled to learn about all of the various shades of Presbyterians. We had some friends over. Actually, Evelyn May had friends over, and now we have friends because of Evelyn May. This is how school works, apparently. And they go to they go to First Pres downtown. and, And so we begin to talk about the different sorts of Presbyterians, and I said, "Don't worry, it's the same with Baptists. It, you know, even though Southern Baptists were the were the biggest, not just that we have the biggest waistlines, but we're the biggest in the sense that we're, we have the most. But there are there are all sorts of different Baptists. There's American Baptists and National Baptists and Missionary Baptists and uh, and the Baptists that don't want to say that they're Baptist and they're just non-denominational." Show me a show me a non-denominational church that sprinkles babies. Okay, they're they're all Baptistic at least, right? So they just don't want to say it. Uh, and I'm sure I've, I've, maybe I offended somebody, but uh, but there's all that we splinter out, and then even in the context of the Southern Baptist Convention, right? If you and I'm definitely not digging up all that stuff. I'm just making a point uh, that there are all sorts of different groups and splinter cells uh, within it. We splinter into various tribes. So tribalism, there's nationalism, there's exceptionalism. I've arrived at some understanding or I've had some certain, some experience. And so I'm set apart from everyone else. There's ethnocentrism and where my ethnicity is the vision, the lenses through which I see the world. Uh, And then there's, I made up a word. Uh, I'm sure somebody else has said it, but there's victimism. Right where our culture, so many components of our culture, live as perpetual victims, uh, and maybe that's you. You ha- you see yourself as you have been victim through economic means or through other ways that you are just simply victim. Uh, and and what we need to see is that all of these isms, various shades of isms, uh, they're intended to set people above and beyond other people. Even the victimism is a way of a, 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 a exercising a superiority complex where we want to demonstrate that we're better than other people. I, I assume, I want to ask the question, have you noticed this? But if you haven't noticed this, you've been living under some wonderful rock. A rock that I want all of us to find shade under. Uh, but I assume that you have seen it and I assume that you've been impacted by it. You'll be impacted by it when it, the next time it is to vote, where you're, you're pushed into these, uh, into these tribes. You'll be, you'll be pushed into, and I feel that as a pastor, what sort, of, what sort of Baptist church? I hear this question. What sort of Baptist church are you? Well, we're just a SBC. What sort of Southern Baptist church are you? That we that we want we want to classify each other and we want to classify preachers. We want to classify our neighbors. Are they conservative? Are they liberal? Are they on my side or are they on the other side that we're we're pushed? And I assume that this culture of division has impacted you. You felt felt the tension of these last few years. 
do I need a show of hands or can you just nod, right? You've, you've experienced this division. It seems, and I, I just turned 40, and so it, it feels like it's worse than it was. It feels like it's worse than it was decades ago. I can say that now, guys, okay? Uh, decades ago, it feel, felt like we were, you know, you, you said it, right? We, uh, I, you would say it. I, I, when I was a kid, they would, my mom and dad would unleash me into the neighborhood on my bike, and they said, come home when the, light, the street lights come on, right? Uh, there ain't no way I'm letting my kids run around until the streetlights come on, right? There's a, we live in a different age. Uh, and it's an age where we assume too often in our culture, we assume the worst about each, about each other. And sometimes it feels like we ought to assume the worst, worst about our context. And so what's the remedy? What are the remedies that are being put forth in front of us? What's the fix? If we live in an age of division and we divide over anything, what's your favorite kind of bubble gum, right? We'll fight over that, I'm sure. Um, all the way up to what, you know, how, how ought the government to act? What, what is the word of God? What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? What's the mission of the church? What is the church? We can divide over all sorts of things, but what, what are the remedies that are being put forth? What are the things that your neighbors and maybe possibly you are looking to, to bring us together? Because it seems like everyone's aware that we need to get together. We need to, we need some unity and less polarization. We need some, some coming alongside one another rather than more splintering. But what are the things that are being offered by the world, by our culture? Well, there are, of course, there are political solutions Here's a legislation, here's a bill, or here's a candidate. Well, certainly if this happens, then we can all rally around it and we can find common common cause with this person or with these politics. Or uh, maybe it's education, right? If If everybody just simply had the same education... If we had same access to education, if we if we educated people not just in textbooks, but in but maybe in educating them about budget or in uh, what is, what is it, what's a what's compound interest, right? Somebody gave me a dollar, you know, they, which they did, and they did explain compound interest to me, and I didn't care when I was twelve. Uh, wish I had, right? Uh, but maybe if we were educated about finances. Or maybe it's social welfare, right? If, there, if the government would simply step in and, and help in these ways and help these needy people in these ways, then, then certainly we would all get together and we would experience some sort of progress or maybe some sort of utopia. And you can remember those of you who are, who are my age. I'm still getting over this middle age thing, so y'all just bear with me. Okay, I feel like I just have graduated into, I should have everything worked out that I don't have worked out, right? Um, But you remember uh, Rodney King during the L.A. riots back in the 90s who just said, can't we all just get along? We have these these voices in the midst of our context that that are just saying, can't we just come alongside one another? Can't can't we just forget our differences and, uh, and, and, and get along? Do, do, have you, I, I've heard all of these remedies, and I assume that you have heard all of these remedies. You've, you've experienced the division, and maybe you've been a part of it. You've seen it affect your neighborhood. You've seen it affect your family. And then the, we have all of these sort of, well, this will fix it. Here are the patches. 
And I've already seen some of you shake your head no, right, that these things aren't going to actually fix this problem. Because we're already divided about politics and about economics and about education, about social welfare. And, the, and then we all want to say, can't we all just get along? And surprisingly to some, God's word speaks in this context. That this message of the Bible, which is however many thousands of years old, this part's not quite as old as other parts of the Bible, um, but it speaks directly that God's word is living and active and God has something to say to us in this circumstance. Because the context in which Timothy, Timothy was laboring for the gospel was very similar to a context in which we find ourselves now. He was in the middle of Ephesus, right? God, God through Paul, was delivering him into Ephesus to, to right the, the, the spiritual ship, to make sure that they weren't teaching false doctrine, that they were preaching the true gospel. Uh, and then we get a hint already of what the, what the solution might be. But Timothy is there. If you remember when the, the, the church, when the gospel first came to Ephesus and Paul is bringing the gospel in Acts chapter 19, and it causes such an uproar uh, that they were, they, they might have been preaching against Artemis, the, the, the goddess of Ephesus, that it was impacting the economic welfare of those who were building Artemis shrines, right? They were, they were, they were building up things. There was, Artemis was the, the patron, uh, the patron goddess of Ephesus. And, uh, and there were silversmiths who built Artemis idols and Artemis shrines. And this was a part of their, um, of their lucrative bankrolling industry, idol industry. And when the gospel comes in, obviously when people begin to see Jesus is the true God, he is the, the true and living word. He, it is by his death alone that we are reconciled to Christ. They're going to repent of idolatry and worshiping Artemis. They're going to sell their, or get rid, probably get, get rid of their idols, and they're going to begin to follow Jesus. And that's going to have an economic impact on a certain quadrant of the city. And what happens in Acts chapter 19 is that there's a riot. There's a big riot, and they, and they, uh, they all get together, and they're looking, to, uh, to, they're looking after those who have turned the world upside down. They're looking for Paul and they get some other guys. And, and so Timothy is entering into a, a tumultuous context where the gospel is already bringing unity, but bringing unity by bringing division. So when I say, and, I'm, and what I'm going to argue before you is that the universal scope of the gospel should lead to a universal concern of the church. That as we look at the various tribes the various divisions, the various groups that are all around our society, all around our culture, and all around the world, is that we as the church should have a universal concern for all of these different groups of people because of the universal scope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if there's going to be a bringing together in Christ, there has to be a division from the old things. Jesus said it in the Gospels, right? If you say that I have come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. 
that you cannot follow Jesus. You cannot have the gospel of Christ and everything else, too. You cannot say that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life and then believing that people will be delivered by economics or that they will be delivered by politics or they'll be delivered by simple pleas. Can't we all just get along? It is Christ and Christ alone who is the hope of every man, woman and child. You, you can't have the gospel while clinging to the false gospels of this world. You can't have Christ and hold on to Artemis. And this is clear, and I don't have time to parse out, but simply read the New Testament. You can't have both. Because in clinging to Christ while clinging to false gospels, now I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about certain things in politics and that we shouldn't care about certain things and caring for people and that we shouldn't care about economics. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying if we're putting our eggs in that basket and we take the gospel of Jesus and then we add it to this other false gospel saying this is going to bring remedy to the divisions. This is going to bring remedy to the to to the brokenheartedness and to the addictions that that this thing is going to work. You can't have both. You can't have both. So not only was Timothy coming into this city that was known for its love of Artemis, known for its love of this, this idol, which elsewhere in, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us that idols are actually no thing and that when people worship idols, they're worshiping demons. It's a part of a demonic confusion, a demonic blinding of the eyes, like in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Uh, so that <clears throat> the, not only is it idol worship, but even now as he's, as we've unpacked chapter one, some that there are these false teachers that have infiltrated the church. So Timothy is contending with this external reality, his contextual reality, while at the same time he's having to engage those in the church that are looking to corrupt the gospel. And how do they want to do it? We've, we've seen some of it earlier. Uh, that they, they want to be teachers of the law, even though they, in verse 7 of chapter 1, even though they don't understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So they're, they're looking to myths and genealogies in chapter 1, verse 4, that, that they are focusing on the Jewishness of the gospel, the Jewishness of the gospel roots, and what they end up preaching is a powerless gospel of elitism. Saying, if you know these myths, if you know these genealogies, if you know these things, you know the law as we teach it, then you will be right. And beyond all that, if you, if you know these things and then you begin to treat your body very severely, chapter 4, chapter four verse Three, that you, you begin to treat your body really severely. You deny the things that God has given, right? Uh, we see in verse, I mean, chapter four, verse three, men who forbid marriage and abstain from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. So if you begin to uh, treat your body severely, you believe the right things that only a few people know, you treat your body very severely, then you've arrived at some spiritual plane that is higher than everyone else. This was, this was part of the false gospel 
that Timothy was contending with in Ephesus. So you see, he's surrounded by contention that's telling him it's Artemis. Then even within the church, he has those no saying, no, you have to know this, these right things. You have, to, you, have to be very, you have to be super disciplined with your body. And then you will arrive at, at some higher spiritual existence. And it is upon Timothy to say, the gospel is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, it's the gospel. Simply, it is not about, it's certainly not about the pagan gods and goddesses. But nor is it either about you and your intellectual or spiritual capacity to understand something beyond the the truths revealed. Nor is it about your spiritual discipline rigor, right? Where you are saying, I fast this much. I read my Bible this much. I wake up this early. I wake up at, at midnight to pray. Look at all the things that I do. And so that there are no, in the, in the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the church of Jesus Christ, there are no second-class citizens. There are no second-class Christians. There is only one gospel that saves. So when Paul, Paul tells Timothy now, and beginning at verse 1 of chapter 2, that was a long introduction, but I want you to see that the division that we experience looks very much like the division that Timothy was coming into in Ephesus. And God's word speaks to that. That the solution to the divisiveness is the gospel. What must be countered to the pagan world around us is the gospel. What must be countered to spiritual elitism within the context of the church is the gospel. I urge that prayers... Entreaties, prayers, petitions, thanksgiving should be made on behalf of all men. That the universal scope of the exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ drives the universal concern of his church. And it begins with prayer. So what we see in chapter two is this bubbling up from the very heart of God Out through the expression of the church, a concern for all peoples and all places, all sorts of people. So it's not just about the pagans. It's not certainly not just about Jewish elitism within the church, but it's about God being concerned with even those who would perpetrate persecution against the church. These are the kings, right? For all kings who are all in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness So that there should be various types of prayers offered for various types of people. These four words for prayer, they're hard to parse out in verse one. It's hard to have the shades of meaning, but there are at least three categories of prayer that should be offered. And I'm beginning here with this sort of application of the gospel before I get into the meat of it, because this is the pattern that Paul has given us in the Bible. I'm just following the text. There should be pleas for general welfare. There should be prayers for salvation. And then genuine thanksgivings that even those who do not know Christ, even pagan leaders, unconverted, unbelieving leaders can be a source of thanksgiving. They can be a source of great curse or they can be a source of blessing Um, But there should be genuine pleas for welfare. 
There should be pleas for salvation. So the entreaties and prayers, this should be, we're, we're asking that God would bless. So just hypothetically, for our president, we should be praying for our president. We should be praying for our senators. We should be praying for our legislators, both in the national House of Representatives and Senate, and also in the South Carolina State Legislature, we are bound by God's word to be praying for those people, whether we like their politics or not. And the question that immediately comes, and if, and if we're going to be at this point, then we have to understand that we have to be gripped by the gospel of Jesus Christ and have Jesus above all else. If we are believing that the remedy, the core remedy, not saying that it doesn't matter, but the core remedy to our problem is right politics, dear ones, that's a false gospel. And if we believe that that's the truth, we're going to spend more time in spiritual, excuse me, in political activism and complaint about political leaders rather than going to the throne of sovereign grace. Understand what I'm saying? So the question, maybe an application question, do you gripe and complain more about your political leaders, those in authority? Do you you gripe and complain more than you do pray for them? And there should be, I feel a subtle rebuke in my spirit, and I'm not even that big of a griper about it, but there's stuff to gripe over, right? Right now, I'm, I'm not denying that. But... Take your complaint to God. God says, pray for their welfare. Pray for their salvation and give thanks when you can. Pray for their welfare. Pray for their salvation and give thanks where you can. It's a good rubric. Apply that. How are you going to pray for President Biden? Pray for his welfare. Pray for his salvation. Give thanks where you can. How are you going to pray for Governor McMaster? Pray for his welfare. Pray for his salvation. Give thanks where you can. You can do that for anybody. Now, your emphases might be different, right? If you're talking about, well, if I'm to pray for all sorts of people, then maybe I shouldn't just pray for American leaders. Maybe I should pray for international leaders. How you pray might look differently through that rubric. It might, if you were to pray for Xi Jinping, the leader of the Communist Party of China, you might spend more time on the middle one. Praying, pleading for God to bring conviction of sin and true repentance to his heart. If you're praying for Vladimir Putin, it might look differently. It might be the similar, but you can take that rubric and apply it. And we ought to be, this is what he's saying, I urge, I plead with you, Timothy, and to the church that you're leading, pray for your leaders. Pray for all sorts of men, but pray all sorts of people, but pray for kings and all who are on authority. Pray for the mayor of Elgin and pray for the, I said the governor of South Carolina already. Pray for your police chief. Anybody who's in authority is just taking this application So why? Why ought we to pray? Why should we be concerned? There's a four there. Four kings and all who are in authority. And this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. That your and my and our 
universal concern. You understand what I mean by that? That we're, we're concerned about all sorts of different people. We're not just concerned about people that look like us, talk like us, smell like us, dress like us, live amongst us. We're concerned about those people or vote like us or educate like us. We're concerned about those people, but we ought to be concerned about all sorts of different people. We should be concerned about those who lead us, Republican and Democrat and whatever other independent, libertarian, whoever else might be up there. That we should be concerned about people who look differently than us and speak differently than us. We should be concerned about people who believe differently than us. We should be concerned about other churches than ours. We should be concerned about other people that are worshiping other gods than ours. We should be concerned about every tribe, tongue, and nation. Why? This is good in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That there is a genuine concern in God for all peoples and all sorts of peoples. That God genuinely cares for people. I just I read Psalm 145, beginning of the service, right? That God does good to all. His mercies are over all his creation. You think about Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, where he's riding up or he's coming up to Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets. I would have gathered you in like a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. There's a genuine good disposition toward God where he desires people to be saved. All people, all sorts of people. Guys, it feels like you're not convinced. This text has been a source of uh, controversy in some circles of of the church. My goal right now is to simply say what this says. Uh, There will be other texts where we can get into other things about if God desires all people to be saved, why are not all people saved? That's a question for later. Okay? So I'm not, I'm not, we don't have, I'm already 30 minutes into this jazz. We don't have time. Okay? But God cares and he wants all men, it says all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. It it probably, there's probably something going on that the all here needs to be interpreted like the all in verse one and the all in verse one is pretty evident that it's all sorts of people. But I think there is still other texts indicate that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. So the question is, is is Paul basically making this connection for Timothy and to the Ephesians church does, does the gospel of Jesus that is for all peoples. Does that gospel shape how you pray? Does that gospel shape how you worship? Does that gospel shape how you live? Are we gospel shaped people or are we believing these other remedies to be greater than the gospel? And therefore, those are shaping how we live, work, play. Do you understand what I'm saying? That whatever you believe to be the fundamental remedy to the human condition, that is going to shape how you pray. That's going to shape how you give. That's going to shape how you spend your days. Are we gospel formed people? Are there certain individuals 
that if they have a certain look about them and you're in the grocery store, you're going to go into the other aisle. You're going to pretend that you're not looking for ice cream, but you're actually looking for whole wheat bread or bananas or something healthy. And so you're going to steer your cart away because there's those sorts of people there. Are there other sorts of people that have a look about them? You're saying, well, they look nice. I'm going to go get my, my tub of Rocky Road and maybe say, hey. Now, that's a silly example. But the gospel would tell us that God has an equal concern for the upstanding citizen and for the criminal in the prisons and criminals who just aren't criminals, but they actually maybe look like criminals to you. They have long hair and tattoos and piercings and whatever else bothers you. Their clothes aren't exactly right. They've got a suitcase, a natty light in their cart. And all you want to do is judge them. The gospel tells us that Jesus is the friend of sinners. And sinners come in three-piece suits. And they come in in gym shorts and t-shirts and flip-flops. Sinners come in all colors and all shapes and all sizes. And Jesus is the savior of all sinners who come to him in faith. And if we're gospel-formed people, then we won't be turned off by what they look like, what they sound like, what they smell like. We will know that what they need is what we have in Christ. And it will shape how we pray. And it will shape how we live. Are we gospel-formed people? There is one God. The universal scope of the gospel must develop in us, must drive out of us a universal concern for all sorts of people Because it is an exclusive gospel. There is only one gospel. There's only one good news. If there if there were only if there were any good news, right? If there were any remedy, you go go follow your dreams, follow your heart, arrive at what makes you happy and satisfied, then we shouldn't care about other people. They have their truth. They have their salvation. They can find their way. I'm going to go find my way. But an exclusive gospel where there is only one good news, it means that universal concern must be proactive. You understand what I'm saying? A universal gospel, I mean, an exclusive gospel with universal concern means that the gospel must be brought to other people. There must be a reaching out both to prayer because only God saves. Only God changes the heart. Only God brings death to brings life from death, brings light from darkness. Only God can do that. But it also should mean that we should be driven out. Because there's one mediator between God and man. There's no other go between. There's no one else except for Christ and Christ alone that stands between you and God. You don't need me. You don't need your deacon. You don't need your Sunday school teacher. You certainly don't need the dude on the picture box that's yelling at you for your money. You don't need a priest or a father or anything else. You have Christ. He is one mediator between God and man. You need no other man. You need no other book. You need no other religion. You need no other prophet. You need nothing else but Christ alone. There's one mediator. One go between, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 
He is the one who has been sent from heaven at the fullness of time. He, has been, he was born of a virgin to redeem and to save us. That he gave his life as a ransom, a testimony at the proper time, Paul says. To buy back those who are in the grip of sin, Satan, and death. So not only should we be formed in how we pray, but we should be formed by this gospel of Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It must give us urgency to reach those far from God. It must stir up within us an urgency to long to see them come to know Him. Urgency to communicate. This is what Paul says in verse 7. For this I was appointed a preacher. How fantastic. Maybe it's just because I'm a preacher. How fantastic that he leads with that. I was appointed as a preacher. And then he says an apostle. We're not making any more apostles like this. But... By God's grace, may we develop more preachers like this. Not just the ones who do what, this, do what I'm doing right now, but you have a role to play in communicating the gospel where you are. That you, as you live out your skills and your joys and your passions for the glory of God, where you live, work, and play... And usually there are going to be other people in those circles where you live, work, and play that you can show and share this message about Jesus in a way that they would never listen to me. If we're shaped by the gospel, we will be compelled to pray for all sorts of different people, all the people that come across our path. And we would be urgent to share the gospel with all people. Paul says that he is appointed a preacher and a teacher, an apostle of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Gentiles here could also be translated nations. That Paul is the one who is sent out into the the tribes, the tongues, the nations. He goes around the Mediterranean Sea to communicate the gospel So the question to you is, who needs to hear? Paul had a specific mandate from Christ to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And part of the fruit of his ministry is the faith that resides in your heart. Because as far as I know, you're all Gentiles. Me too. We've believed upon the gospel. We've trusted in Christ. We've experienced new life. Paul says, I have to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. So who needs to hear? There's a great opportunity. Our church is partnering with Shannon Baptist Church, and we're, we're piggybacking on a trip that they have going to Puerto Rico. I know it's been mentioned up here, but this is a particular application of what exactly I'm talking about right now. That it might feel like, well, though, you know, and we should be praying for them, right? They're in the line of, I don't know if that hurricane's already come through or not, but they, they were, they're dealing with hurricanes, hurricane season. But it might feel like those are people on an island far away. I don't know their names. I they look differently than me. They speak a different language than me. I sh- why should I care about them? Because the gospel is why. Because Jesus Christ is why. Because when you look at the end of the book, 
You look at the end of the book, you look at places like Revelation chapter 5 and Revelation chapter 7. It says, worthy are you to take the scrolls for you died to ransom a people for yourself from every tribe and tongue and nation. If we're going to claim Christ as our Lord and Savior and saying, hallelujah, what a Savior, then we must see that he has placed us here and now so that others can hear. And not just the people next door. Yes, good grief, they need to hear. Go across the street. But the people's to the end of the earth. I'm not, I have a big, big, life-size hobby horse on this, so I'm not going to get on it. But here is an opportunity that we can, you can go, take a trip. If you've never been overseas, it's not really overseas. It's a commonwealth, but you do fly over water. So checkmarked for that. You can go to Puerto Rico and you can see what it is. You can see what it is to be concerned about other people who can't give you anything in return other than love and gratitude. And what you will learn is that that's more than enough to bring joy to your heart. And so um, this, is, this is my pitch, my sales pitch, right? It's the beginning of November, November 3rd through the 9th. But if we're going to be gospel-shaped people, yes, take it to your neighbors. Take the gospel to your friends. Take the gospel to your family. Participate in the outreach missions of the church. But here's a great opportunity to say, God, I'm going to follow you. And maybe this is a time where you say, I need to be reoriented around the gospel and concerned about people other than myself and people that look differently than me. And God's doing something in you. And you take this step of faith and you come back. I promise you, you go, you see that. And you see what God does in those contexts. You will come back differently. You will come back changed. If you will ask God, open my eyes and come back. Let me come back on mission. Let me come back seeing how I can serve my neighbor and love my neighbor and pray for my neighbor and take the gospel to my neighbor. So maybe this is what you need to jumpstart your missional engine. I don't know what God has for you, but pray about it. And if and we obviously we need to know sooner rather than later. So talk, talk to Jeff. Raise your hand, Jeff. There, talk to Jeff over there. Uh, we'll get you. We'll, we'll get you plugged in. Uh, we get you. And hopefully, by God's grace, this won't be the, the last opportunity. But. This is this opportunity before you right now. And if God's pricking your heart, listen. Okay. Um, and, but the question is beyond that. Not only who needs to hear, but have you heard? There's one mediator between God and man. We've, I've outlined just a snippet of the problem in humanity. But you know, the divisions that we experience aren't just divisions that happen out here external to us. But Jesus says that the problem is in our heart. That sin has corrupted our desires and corrupted our affections. And so rather than being bent toward God, we are bent in on ourselves. And when we are focused on ourselves, we certainly don't care about other people. And if you're tired of living a life that's all you feel like you're doing is staring in the mirror. And you don't like what you see. You're concerned about yourself all the time. What you need to know is that there's a God who loves you, who desires you to be saved. And the only way that you are saved is if you come to a knowledge of the truth, which means that you believe with new spiritual eyes that Jesus Christ is the son of God. That you leave away your sin, your selfishness, seeking your own glory. 
You repent of all that. That's what that means. You change your mind. You turn away from it and you turn to Jesus. And you say, Lord, I want to trust you. I'm not worthy of it, but I know that you died, that I could be forgiven. You died that I might be reconciled with you. I want to trust you today. And what you need to know, and whatever your baggage is, whatever that other voice that the liar is telling you right now, none of you are too bad. And certainly none of you are too good. None of us are too good. You need what God offers you in Jesus. Would you respond to him today? Some of you need to respond in faith for the first time and surrender your life to Jesus. Some of you need to surrender and say, I need to be shaped by the gospel to be concerned about all sorts of different people and take the gospel where it has not been heard yet. Whatever it is, would you respond as the Lord leads you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy, for how you are good to us. We thank you for that you do good in all your works and your mercy is over all of your creation. God, I pray if there are some here who right now they're wrestling with their salvation, they're wrestling with whether or not they they were simply trusting in, in other things while putting a Jesus shirt on that idol. Lord, would you give them grace that they might see that you would convict them of their sin, but that is a gracious work. And as you convict them, would you awaken them that Jesus stands arms open, calling and compelling that they would come, that they would trust him, that they would follow him. Oh, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you enable them to respond? I pray for your church that's now, they're following you, they're trusting you, but God, they have been, they've been formed by other stories and other ways. And it's affected the way they pray. And it's affected the way they live. And right now, Lord, you are outlining those things. You are showcasing those things through your spirit's work in their hearts and their minds. And I pray that you would give them grace for repentance, that you would give them grace for new sorts of living, new sorts of praying, new sorts of concern and of activity that you would lay upon them people that they know of right now that need to hear of Christ. And that for some, Lord, that you would lay upon them this opportunity to go to Puerto Rico, to take a step that they've never taken before probably, and Lord, to go, to follow your call, to go and make disciples of the nations, and that, Lord, you would transform them as they surrender more and more to your plan for them. So, Lord, would you build your church through your will, through your word, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.